Good morning, everyone. Morning, morning. Uh, it's great to uh, be able to share. Uh, well, it's great to be able to worship, but it's also be able to great to share God's word together this morning as well, isn't it? Um, a very warm welcome to you. If uh, if you're a visitor here, if it's your first time, it's wonderful to uh, to see you and to meet with you. Uh, apparently, there are some Welsh visitors here. Uh, is that right? Ah, oh, fantastic. So. Uh, I'm a Welshman as well, so we can, we're, we're slowly invading the, uh, the area, so that's good. But it's great, great to welcome you as well. Um, as many of you will uh, have remembered, um, if, you were, yeah, if you've been here over the last two or three years, um, I, I was a, an airport security officer for, for just shy of two years, and you would have probably remembered me walking around in this kind of lilac, purple kind of weird uniform, you know. And uh, one of my jobs as a security officer was to x-ray uh, bags, okay? So I was the one who used to, if you were going on a flight and you've, you've forgotten about a bottle of water and you put it through the x-ray, excuse me there, you, you threw the mic on the floor, and you put it through the x-ray and I would uh, take the bag off and I'd come up to you and say, I'm afraid you can't take this bottle of water through the it's too big. And you'd always used to shout and complain at me. You'd be amazed how many people used to take Marmite on holiday. <laughs> Very true. It's the, one of the biggest, that was the main things that I took off out of people's bags was Marmite. Interesting. Well, there you go. Maybe that's what that says about the UK. I don't know. Well, one of, the, one of these occasions that uh, I was x-raying a bag, it was about three or four o'clock in the morning, and uh, I stopped a bag. And it had a lot of things in it, and uh, within it, I should have got a picture of this, there was a, a what looked like a sewing kit. And uh, I stopped the bag and I looked at it and was puzzled by it because within inside the, within inside the sewing kit was something that looked quite sharp. And I called the, the bag person over because I was on x-ray, he was on bag, so I said, I think you should probably check this. He said, oh, I, I don't think it's anything. I, I don't think uh, there's anything serious here. I don't think there's a problem. Uh, I said, oh, well, I, I, I think maybe we should just double-check this. So uh, he pulled the bag off. He said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll just double-check. And inside the bag was this. Okay. Anyone people work out what this is? So this, you pull this out, and it doesn't look like anything, does it? But if you go on to the next slide, it becomes that. And... Uh, when, um, when the, the bag person came back and said, oh, actually, this is what was in the bag. First of all, this is, a, this is an illegal item. You can't take this with you. It's a concealed weapon, and it's lockable, so you can't take it. You shouldn't have this on your person unless for a specific purpose, okay? When I looked down at the person who had this in their bag, it was a 70-year-old a lady. Okay. An elderly lady had this in her bag. And uh, in, in her defense, she said, because uh, th this was the worst thing about it for me, was that uh, she was so apologetic and she felt um, so terrible. But sadly, the police had to come over and have like a conversation with her because it was an illegal thing. It was quite funny that this little old lady with this quite dangerous kind of thing in her bag. But I remember thinking at the time uh, how appearances can, uh, can, can fool you a little bit. She, uh, and she did say that uh, I use it for, for sewing. I bought it off Amazon, okay? I, I've used it. I don't know why you can just buy some scissors anyway. I don't know. Decided to go for this. Um, 
and she was very apologetic. She handed it over and whatever. But I remember that story vividly, and I was quite uh, slightly proud of myself that I'd spotted that in the bag. Um, but what was funny about it was it goes to show that not everything we come across in life is, is as innocent as it appears. Okay? She'd made a mistake. She wasn't planning on using this for any <laughs> sorts of <laughs> dangerous kind of actions or activities. She'd made a mistake. But it did go to show that something that looked quite simple, like a little sewing kit, or what seemed like a little credit card thing, but actually could be used for something far more dangerous. Not everything may be as it seems. And this is true for church life as well. We've recently started looking at the letter of Titus, written by Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, and it was written around 60 AD. And Paul is writing to a guy called Titus, one of his missionary co-workers, and he's leading and helping churches on the Greek island of Crete. And we've learned that Titus was left there by Paul to appoint leaders, what, what he calls elders. And Andy shared with us last week that these leaders should, uh, what these leaders should be like in their behavior and in their character. Well, this week we're going to look at the next section of the letter. And our passage today is a sort of a contrast to what we learned last week. Okay. We learned last week how church leaders should be honest and gentle, not quick-tempered, not overbearing, not pursuing dishonest gain people who are disciplined, upright, holy, and honor truth, and specifically the truth of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, the passage that is there on the screen from last week. And the, the truth that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, and that his life, his death, and his resurrection confirmed his identity as the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we can have our sins forgiven and receive a new life, the life that we were created to live, a life in close and intimate relationship with our Creator. This is the truth that primarily church leaders are to hold to. And then the last verse of Andy's passage last week, which I've highlighted in bold that's on the screen, says this. That the leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine or healthy teaching. And this is where our passage today comes in. And he must refute those who oppose it. He must refute those who oppose sound doctrine or healthy teaching, teaching that is true teaching that is from God. And so church leaders are to be the ones primarily in the church that watch out for teaching that is false, unbiblical, or ungodly, and refute those who teach it and discipline those to protect the church and with the hope that those false teachers in the church will eventually turn back to sound teaching. That's a bit of a summary of what Andy shared with us last week. But that links very much with our passage this morning because what Paul says this is this. Because these churches that he was writing to, there were groups evidently that were not honoring the true gospel. They were not teaching sound or healthy doctrine. And there were, it seems in the churches in Crete, they were teaching wrong things. Things that were contrary to the teaching of Jesus, which he'd passed to his disciples, which the disciples had passed to the churches. What the Bible calls false teaching. And this is arguably, I think, one of the main reasons Paul was writing this letter to Titus, to advise him on this serious matter. Because for Paul, this was a big deal. And hopefully, I, I pray, we'll, we'll see that this is also a big deal for us as Christ's church today. That we watch out for false teaching. Because as I look at the world, it is rampant. The church is to be the place where truth is honored, protected, and passionately taught and expressed, not just from the pulpit, but from the mouths and lives of all of us as Christians who make up the church. 
That is our, or should be our commitment. Our God is a God of truth. And if we are his people, his children, his representatives in this world, then truth, and particularly the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, this complete truth of who God is, what he has done, this complete truth which we could sum up as the gospel, this truth needs to be protected. And that is not just the responsibility of the elders of the church. Primarily it is, but we all have a duty within this. It's the second time I've hit that microphone. It's our duty to do this. Let's read together from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 to 16, and I'll read it aloud for you. And I'll be reading from the NIV 2011 version. Titus chapter 1, verse 10 to 16. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Some strong words in there, right? Whoa, some strong statements made. Thank you, Andy, for giving me this passage. No, I did tease. Now, you may have read this passage, and I thought, well, I don't know how this could possibly apply to me this morning. You know, I'm not a false teacher. I'm not obsessed with Jewish myths, whatever they are, and I'm also not an elder. So as we learned last week, they're the ones who primarily are the ones who watch over the teaching of the church. So that may be true for, for most of us here, and it is true for most of us here, I'm sure. But that does not mean that it doesn't apply to us. There are principles here that we, we can and I believe have to learn as the church of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest there are responsibilities that we need to acknowledge and take seriously for each of us who are a part of the church today. This section is not just for elders, it's not just for Bible teachers. There are points that will apply to all of us who make up the church if we let them. If we let them. Now I'm going to firstly just explain a little bit more clearly what's going on in the churches. There's a lot of strong phraseology in there. There's, an, there's a couple of odd quotes that Paul uses. Um, so I'm going to give a bit as good an explanation as I can about this. And then we'll draw out some lessons to consider. So it seems that in these churches, in the churches in Crete, there are a couple of groups who are teaching things which Paul says they ought not to be taught. They ought not to teach, says Paul. Scholars debate still what Paul was referring to specifically. That's an easy kind of cop-out answer, isn't it? But scholars are still debating what, what specifically he was on about. But we do get a hint of it in the passage, and there is enough for us to paint a general picture. Now, the passage will be up on the screen. There it is, where I've highlighted some key words for us to kind of consider. Now, false teaching comes in all shapes and all sizes. It can sometimes come through ignorance and genuine mistake when someone is in genuine error, but, but they don't know it. Often, through help and guidance, they are corrected. Okay. That's one form of false teaching. But there are some who teach false things, and they have been deceived 
that what they are teaching is really true, and often these teachers' motives are impure and off the mark. And it seems possible that there were a number of groups in Crete who were from both camps, okay? There were some teaching false, uh, some teaching false things, what we would sometimes call heresy, and some that were just missing the mark. And one of these groups, it seems, were primarily Jewish, because Paul describes them as those of the circumcision group. Now, something we need to remember is that the early church at the beginning of church history was mostly made up of Jewish Christians. Now, Jews who had put their faith and trust in Jesus. Now, as the church grew, many non-Jews also believed in Jesus and became a part of the church. And from this rose some disagreements about how the church should interact with the Old Testament part of Scripture. Or more specifically, the law of the Old Testament part of Scripture. The law were the commandments that God gave to the Israelites or the Jews, which we read about in books like Exodus and Deuteronomy. And the debate, which you can read about in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 15, concerned which laws of the Old Testament should Christians adhere to today. For example, Christians, some Jewish Christians at the time, were seeking to force non-Jewish Christians to circumcise their children. Others were seeking to teach that all Christians should adhere to the ceremonial and ritual laws regarding the foods, to the food laws. There were certain foods that Jews were commanded not to eat. And then at this point in church history, there were Jewish Christians saying, well, Christians should still not eat these foods. Now, these were select groups. They, just a small number of them, but they were present in a lot of places that Paul seemed to be traveling and teaching. And these groups clearly existed in Crete, and they were turning, says verse 11, whole households of Christians upside down, completely upside down. Now, most of the wider church had accepted that because Jesus has fulfilled the law, that Jesus had kept the law perfectly, that Jesus, the Messiah, was the only one able to do that, and these laws were now no longer required for Christians. That was the general consensus. So circumcision, for example, and all the guys in here so happy about this. Uh, for example, circumcision is now no longer required as a commandment. Okay? And for those who are teaching that it was, Paul was then arguing, and he argues this in one of his other letters, in the letter to the Galatians, that they were denying that only faith in Jesus Christ was sufficient to be saved. What they were saying was that, in effect, you must believe in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, that's not true. Salvation is found wholly in Jesus, belief and faith and trust in him. And then the Jewish food laws as well, some were saying that there were foods that Christians should no longer eat, but because it would defile them and make them impure. But then Paul would argue, well, no, these false teachers, they're focusing on ritual purity and ignoring what Jesus said. And that's why Paul quotes this odd kind of phrase in verse 15. Okay. Verse 15, I'll just read it again to us. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. What's Paul getting at there? Christians do not need human commands to cleanse them, okay, to make them pure. Jesus does, Jesus does that. Let me repeat that again. Christians do not need human commands to cleanse them, to make them pure. Jesus does that when we believe and put our faith in him. And when we turn from our sin and repent and put our life in his hands, then we are clean and we are pure and we are saved. So the Old Testament laws regarding food, they no longer apply to Christians for today. And so Paul then says, ironically, that these teachers, though they claim to seek, seek to have ritual purity, 
by encouraging Christians to follow these laws, they actually have resulted in their minds and consciousness being corrupted. Now, these groups claim to know God, as it says in verse 16. They're false and deceptive teachers. They're teaching that were slightly off the mark. As well as their dishonest actions, demonstrated they denied who God was. And this fits with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. It will be up on the screen for us. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. So you've got these two groups going on in the church, confusing people. You must be circumcised. You must follow the food laws. And there's all this kind of discussion and debate. And there's also this other group, who was mentioned in verse 14, that say that there are people who are obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. Okay? And then we see, and we saw this two years ago in the letter of 1 Timothy, and they'll get that up on the screen as well, just to compare. This was a problem that Timothy, another of Paul's co-workers, had to deal with. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, it says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any, any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. There were groups in these churches that were getting obsessed with the wrong things. They were getting distracted. And we can see similarities in the situations between Timothy and Titus. And it seems like folks in Crete, just like in Ephesus where Timothy was, were becoming obsessed with Jewish ancestry. And this was creating unhelpful discussions in the church. And it was leading them down paths they didn't need to go down. And they were getting obsessed with it. And obstructively, they were being distracted. And some of these teachers in Crete, it seems, were so good at speaking, such good orators, such good at with luring speech, they would lure people away, distract them, and get them to focus on things that weren't helpful and that were unimportant. And this was stunting the growth of the Christians in the church. Right. Whew. There's a lot of background in there. And uh, you can chat to me afterwards about more of that because there's a lot more that would be best I could try and summarize with. But a final thing to mention before I get into some lessons for us this morning. We need to keep in mind the culture of the churches at Crete. I mentioned two weeks ago that the way of Jesus and the teachings about being a Christian and the Christian character would have had a re would have been a real head scratcher for the Cretans. Okay. If you remember what we, speak about we spoke about two weeks ago, Crete at the time was a society characterized by gambling, sexual excess, greed, dishonesty, and violence. And they took that example from the mythical false god Zeus. And they had lots of stories about Zeus and his seductive and deceitful ways, and they were celebrated in Cretan culture. And it infiltrated into Cretan's behavior, into the everyday life of the church. And that's why Paul quotes one of Crete's own prophets to them. Verse 12. This is a verse that has puzzled many scholars and Christians. Okay, Verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets, it says it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. 
Where do we go with that? Thanks, Paul. Now, Paul is doing this ironically, okay? That has to be made clear at the start. Paul is doing this ironically. He's not saying all Cretans are like this, but he is using an illustration to make the point. There are teachers, or the teachers that seem to be teaching these things, these false things, they were fulfilling this supposed stereotype spoken by one of their own poets, one of their own prophets, okay? The Cretan culture of the time was characterized by deception and greed. It was known for that behavior. And the church of Christ had to be different. And what Paul is saying here is, these false teachers, they are living up to this stereotype. But the church has to be different. And so what is Paul, uh, what is Titus, sorry, instructed to do here? Well, as we read in our passage, these teachers must be silenced. When someone in the life of the church is corrected or disciplined, the motive should always be that they return to a place of being what Paul calls sound in the faith. When false teaching comes, it is the duty of the church leaders to seek to correct that teaching and to steer that person back to sound teaching. And it's clear that these teachers are already having impacts on families and on homes, causing people in the church to stumble, to go astray, to falter in their walk with God. And this is an imperative, according to Paul, that this must be stopped. This is something that must be dealt with categorically. It's not, Titus, go have a quiet word with this group. Just kind of have a, a little word with them and say, you need to stop doing this. No, th this was a serious imperative for Paul. God's church was at stake. And people's walks and relationships with God, with God were at stake. And the words here for silent that Paul uses also means muzzled, to muzzle an ox. It was a strong word. These must be muzzled and silenced and dealt with now strongly. And when it comes to representing the God we serve, it must be taken seriously. When teaching is spoken that dishonors God, that denies Jesus or is untruthful or unbiblical, it is something God takes incredibly seriously. Probably much, well, definitely much more seriously than we take it. So then... Where does this leave us this morning? What lessons can we take from our passage today? Well, here are some reflections, and I've summarized them on the screen for us. There is a key challenge for us as the church, is that we pray that our church stands on the truths of God revealed in the Bible. We have a duty to pray for our elders. We have fantastic elders and leaders in this church. And we are incredibly thankful, I know, as a fellowship and as a flock for how they've led us over the last few years through a very difficult and turbulent time. And we need to pray for them. Because as Andy said last week, if Satan wants to attack anyone and knock out anyone, it's a church leader. So we must pray for our elders. That as they shepherd us, that the welfare of the flock, which we know depends on the quality of what the shepherd feeds us. The welfare of the flock depends on the quality of what the shepherd feeds us. So let us pray for our elders that they will be men of God, who continue to be men of the word, 
that they would be protected from error and be guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's an easy thing. It's an easy point to say. And these are the kinds of points I often think that when we leave the door, we forget about. Because it's easy to say, I'll pray for that. Let's pray for that. I'd encourage you, if you've got a pen and a paper, write that down. Let's pray for our elders and our leaders. Because if Satan's going to attack anyone, he's going to attack them. Because he knows the disruption that it causes. And we must pray that they will continue to have wisdom as they navigate quite complex issues. But then I would also pray, and this includes me in this, we also have a duty to pray for our Bible teachers. And I would very much value your prayer in that. Those involved, and that's not just teaching from the pulpit, as Andy mentioned earlier, that's teaching the young people. Teaching the children, which I think is arguably the most important form of teaching. We must pray for those of us who are in a teaching role that the word of God is handled humbly and correctly and we take the role seriously. And then we have a duty to pray for all of us as a church to be men and women who read and study the Bible. Though there are elders that have the responsibility, we have a duty to read and seek to understand the scriptures. A helpful lesson for each of us, I think, is watch and pray. Watch and pray. Satan has been spreading lies and deceit since the beginning. And all false teaching about God or about Jesus will find its roots in him. Always. And we must be on guard and we should never feel that we aren't vulnerable. Never get to a position where you feel that I'm okay. I've got it all sorted and settled. Never get to that place. According to Paul, these teachers, they'll be obvious to us within the church, these false teachers. Their actions will deny God. Jesus said that it was by their fruit, what they produce, that we will know who they are. Now, some false teaching may be more subtle. Some movements and ideas may be wildly off the mark and really obvious, but some may be only a little bit off target. The trickiest lies to spot are those that are 95% true. But there's a nugget of falsehood. And that's why we need to be alert and on guard. It's easy to spot the movements and the organizations and the ideas that are wildly off the mark. But Satan is much more subtle than that. And we need to be on guard. Now, there are some teachings that will contradict or distort the gospel. There are some that will deny aspects of Jesus' life or his death or his resurrection. There are some that may encourage sinful activities whilst also claiming Jesus as Savior. There may are some that may advocate practices forbidden in Scripture. And there are some that might change interpretations of certain passages to arrive at certain conclusions. A helpful way to think about this, I find, is what is sometimes called heretical mathematics. Rachel Watson, you're going to love this. Maths teaching. Heretical maths, or heretical mathematics. All dangerous doctrine or false teaching will, in some way, be adding to, subtracting from, multiplying, or dividing the gospel. Let me say that again. All dangerous doctrine or false teaching will be in some way adding to, subtracting from, 
multiplying or dividing the gospel. Now, what's also tricky about this is that we have such a wealth of so-called evangelical Christian resources. We as a generation are bombarded with information every single day in all kinds of platforms. The amount of Christian information we have access to is enormous. Do not think that the devil will not use that to plant subtle falsehoods. We have radio channels, podcasts, books, YouTube channels, sermon series, articles, journals, magazines, television channels, social media posts, blogs, blogs, dogs, not dogs, online courses and studies. We've got so much and much, much more than that. And not everything we will see or hear may be true. We need to remember that. Not everything we see, not everything we'll hear will be true. We must test everything with this. We must test everything with this. More and more respected so-called Bible teachers, pastors, leaders, apologists, Christian musicians, and the like are turning from truth to false ways. Do not think that we're not also vulnerable. Leaving behind the truths of God and life found in the scriptures. So many, every week, I keep getting sent post after post. This pastor, this leader, this. Do not think we're not vulnerable. We have the greatest gift. Two, actually. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. And therefore, we are without excuse. We must be alert to subtle ways that false teaching can creep into our churches. As culture and society continues to shift, in its morality and its ethics and its understandings of life and humanity and the world, we must be wary that the church does not also allow aspects of these worldviews to seep into the church. It is happening more and more every day across the world. As society and culture shifts in its morality, in its understanding of God and the world, and its understanding of relationships, sexuality, marriage, humanity, life, we must be wary that the church does not subtly allow these to seep into our teaching and into our way of life. It was clear in Crete that the Christians were struggling with this culture of creed and dishonesty and they were, while they were trying to be a Christian. And we too are in that battle. And we have to be wary that we don't view the world and the issues of the world and life as the wider society and the culture does. We have to see the world through a different lens. I'll pick it up again. And that lens is this. We have to. So let's pray. Pray for our leaders that their walks with God remain humble and intimate. Pray for us, for each other. That we would be people who love and honor the word of God and be people of truth. Another lesson for us. 
It was clear in Crete that there were some that were getting distracted by things that were unhelpful. We can also fall into this trap. Now, these Jewish myths and the like, they were causing these Christians to stumble in their walk with God. And a good question to ask ourselves is often, are there things in my life that are distracting me from the cause of Christ? Are there things in my life, they might be good things, they might be bad things, they might be indifferent things. But are there things in my life that are causing me to not live fully for the cause of Christ? Because we can get distracted by good or indifferent things. We can get distracted by bad things, sinful temptations or sinful pursuits, and we can deal with that. But we can also get distracted by good or indifferent things. A classic one, I think, is certain Bible topics, and we talk about this a lot in church, okay? But we become too obsessed with certain issues or doctrines or certain subjects in the Bible, things like eschatology, the, the doctrine of the end times. We get too obsessed with it. Now, it's an interesting topic, I'll grant you that. But when we come overly distracted by it, when we are looking at all the different viewpoints, rather than focusing on the main point, which is that Christ is coming back and we have a job to do, if the focus is all on the study and all we're missing the point. Now, we can also get distracted by good causes, and I've got to be very careful here, and this is a challenge to me as well this morning. There are concerns in the world that need to be looked at from a Christian perspective, and there needs to be Christian voices in certain, well, in all areas of life, but in certainly in these ones. Climate or environmental concerns, charitable causes, social action and justice. There needs to be church and Christian voices in these spheres. But if our life is all-encompassed and focused upon these causes, and not the cause of Christ, not the cause of the gospel, then maybe we need to check our priorities a little. And I include myself in that challenge. If we're all obsessed and encompassed with certain issues, but not the gospel, if that's not the thing that breaks our heart more than anything else, then we need to reflect on where our heart is. And I include myself in that this morning. Jesus has given us, as the church, a mission, a cause. And one day, we will stand before him and give an account about what we've done for that cause. And how we have used what he's given us. And so it's always good to reflect and ask God, Lord, what is distracting me from running the race that you have set before me? What bad or perhaps good things are preventing me from living a wholeheartedly devoted life for you? and for your cause, and for the gospel. There are many issues in the world and in life that are good things for Christian voices to be a part of. But our ultimate goal, and the thing that we will stand before Christ and give an account for, is the cause, his cause, of what we did with his gospel and with his message. And that's a challenge to all of us as well. Finally then, as I finish, a last challenge for us. Verse 16 said this, that these false teachers, they claimed to know God, but by their actions, they denied him. Do our words and our actions demonstrate that we belong to Jesus Christ? If someone was to sit you down, to look at your life as in a book, 
all of your words, all of your actions, would they come to, to the conclusion that you belong to Christ? Another way of looking at the, the question, perhaps, is where do my words and my actions lead people? These false teachers were leading people down paths away from Christ. Do my words and actions lead people to Christ? Do they lead them astray, or do they lead them astray like the false teachers? It's that question again, isn't it, of integrity. Do my actions match my words? Or can people see Christ in me? That question I remember as a speaker asking me when I was very young. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a classic illustration, but it makes the point. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Jesus' words are a challenge to us here as well. By their fruit, you shall know them. We will know who is true and we will know who is false by the fruit that we produce. To finish then, I'm going to invite the band up to lead us in song just now. I'm going to read a passage in closing to encourage us. It's been a quite a hard message this morning. There's a lot in there. But it's something that I always want to say, and I'm trying to say more and more as a Bible teacher. The Holy Spirit is an absolute gift. And if we need help in any aspect of the things we've talked about this morning, he will give it if we ask. So, as we reflect, let's pray that we will be empowered by the Spirit to do these things. As we reflect on our duty to be people of truth and integrity, to be people who hold fast to the Word of God, that as we pray for our leaders and teachers and all of us who make up this church to be people of truth that hold to the Scriptures, to combat falsehood when we see it, to remain focused on our mission. And that we would know God and that this would be seen in our words and actions. Let's ask for the Spirit's help in all of these tasks. Ephesians 4 says this. This is Paul writing again. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's a challenge to us. Help us by your spirit to reflect on the challenges you have. Help us to become more like Christ each day. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord Jesus. Bless us now, we ask in your name.